0: Here's the strike, and here is pitch number two. <laughs> With one blast of his bat. They were riding an open automobile when the shots were fired. <laughs> in other words, you can yell fire in a crowded theater if you're on stage, but don't do it off stage. The theater is make believe, that's where it's at. Marbone High, it's been
1: I seemed, somehow, to recognize it. I don't mean I know who was speaking. It was the tone I recognized, the touching quality of some half-remembered and tender event, even through the static.
0: Don DeLillo Should Win the Nobel Prize, I'm Jeff Sievers. And I'm Mike Strait. Happy Nobel Day, Jeff. Jeff yes, happy Nobel morning, in fact. Mm-hmm. We just found out that the more appropriate title for this particular episode is Don DeLillo did not win the Nobel Prize, but this gives us reason to keep going. Uh, the prize did go, in fact, to Jon Fossa. Um, yes, whose uh, name we've just learned to pronounce. briefly. Yes. Of Norway. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we don't know anything about Jon folks <laughs> so probably like most of the world I think yeah. is, is the thing we've read his Wikipedia entry or most of it he's written novels mm-hmm. he's written plays and you have this told me I didn't read this anywhere but uh, you're telling me that he's the new Ibsen this
1: generation's, Ibsen. This he, generation's he is Ibsen
0: which is quite a you know I mean in
1: Norway that's the, the gold standard what well, I'm obviously. most disappointed though Jeff, uh, about is that you didn't win any money. That's right. I had, I had, I did
0: admit to my DeLillo bet, of course, but I also had a little scratch on Thomas Pynchon Mm. and Salman Rushdie, who I thought we thought had a real big, uh, his moment. Well, not to underscore the unfortunateness of, of the circumstance, which brought him to a new, Fame, and new kind of danger for the writer, uh, right? His uh, being attacked uh, at a reading. Uh, was that about a year ago? year and a half ago? Yeah, year and a half yeah, ago. Yeah. That
1: itself giving him the prize would seem almost like a political right. act, yeah. wouldn't it, if, yeah. he, if he did win in 2023? In yeah.
0: One of the things we'll talk about in this kind of Nobel Prize podcast is the politics of the
1: prize. And- politics and optics. <laughs> I feel like they're right. they're intimately uh, entwined. In this whole process. Oh, and one other mention about Yon uh,
0: Fossa that uh, struck me is that the Dalkey Archive, um, a US the publisher of Avant Garde Texts, has published uh, several of his works um, in translation, and uh, that. Is um, an indication of you know one of the things we'll talk about is the untranslatedness of so much global literature mm-hmm. in the American sphere, and the Nobel Prize becomes a way for a right, a new writer often to be <laughs> brought to world audiences, especially and American audiences, North American audiences with l- which we're most familiar.
1: There's multiple ironies with the prize. One of them being that for established writers uh, winning this prize is exposure in, in many ways, Most definitely, even yeah. though they're coming, they're, it's, they're usually coming to uh, the twilight or, or the, the culmination of, of their careers.
0: Yeah. And Fosa is mid
1: sixties. I think he might be
0: 64. So relatively young by comparison to the writers that we're also talking about, you know, who are uh, many of whom are in their eighties and, and so on. Um, yeah, which I I, I wonder uh, if we looked at the overall list if um, we could find an average age of the uh,
1: of, of the Nobel Prize winner. That'd be interesting. I would first first <laughs> guess. I would say fifty. 50, oh, to, 50 to sixty. Really?
0: I would. Say, huh. What would you yeah. guess? I would guess somewhere between sixty and seventy. Okay. Would be, yeah. Just because that it is the. Um, I'm lowballing a yeah, bit. I think I'm yeah. lowballing a bit. But I, I, in saying that, I'm admitting to the fact that, for instance, Annie Arnaud, last year's winner from France, I would have, you know, you you do have the sense that pe- people have established a long career. But of right. course, like thirty years of a career starting in their twenties is is enough uh, for the Nobel Prize. True. But just don't know enough about these writers. Uh, um, broadly speaking,
1: so, but if you I, win this, you're on the global stage and right. it's the global, it's the global aspect that we'll be talking about. Somewhat yeah. We'll have a, show. a few thoughts about that.
0: We, we thought we would uh, take sort of two main uh, threads here or have two main threads. One is to really, uh, kind of put the prize, the Nobel prize in context of prize culture through uh, a book by James English, uh, that we'll get to. Um, that is about the culture of prizes. And then talk about DeLillo really as global author, as um, a writer who, well, a few moments in his career, a few kind of looks at his career that make us think of the Nobel prize Mm -hmm. in a way uh, and its global stage um, for this, you know, American author with maybe you know, capital, of course, capital A on American, but capital A on author in this case, the American author.
1: Yeah. And tied in with that discussion will be a meditation on DeLillo as writer, but also DeLillo on writing. It seems like throughout his career, DeLillo is intimately tied with the act of writing, what this means to do as not only a career, but a a um, moment in the room, yeah. hours in the room, right? I think that maybe the Nobel Prize is a is an apt symbol for the end. It, it's not a necessary endpoint, but it is an endpoint of just the the immensity of distance between the secret of the solitary writer in the solitary room and EFAM. <laughs> Mifa,
0: <laughs> fame, Same. the global. Yes, so put it in the straightforward terms of great, great Jones, exactly. Quoting, yes, right.
1: Yeah, of uh, the global stage. Uh, those two poles couldn't be further apart in many ways, and uh, that that distance, that travel is, um, is quite something to consider. I, F-Fendig, of course, uh considers that
0: fame in uh in great joe street is uh, uh someone who will uh, be spending some time on and when we talk about great joe street but he's relevant here as the as someone concerned with fame fame requires every kind of excess, as great precisely Great teaches us shall we get um, into the yeah why don't we uh, let me uh, uh get right into english by reading uh from his first few pages of the book a kind of pithy paragraph that sums up Uh, His approach to prizes in general, because this is a book not just about the Nobel, although it is extensively about the Nobel, uh, but about all the kind of, in a way, after effects of the Nobel Mm -hmm. Prize, the prizes that are clearly in response to the Nobel Prize. Uh, He has interesting things to say about that. This is uh, James F. English. He's a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And the book is from 2005, and it's titled The Economy of Prestige, Prizes, Awards, and the Circulation of Value. And I would say that the theoretical perspective here is um, no surprise. It's from Pierre Bourdeux. Lots of ideas of cultural capital and uh, prestige as a kind of artificial category that we create. Here's what English uh, has to say uh, about his book. The practice of arts and culture prize giving becomes more common with the rise of Royal and national academies, and then of professional associations and learned societies from the 17th to 19th centuries has expanded ever more rapidly since the turn of the 20th century and presents itself to us today as perhaps the most ubiquitous feature of cultural life, touching every corner of the cultural universe from classical music to tattoo art, hairstyling, and food photography. Yet it remains a strange practice inasmuch as we continue to be discomfited by what seems an equation of the artist with the boxer or discus thrower, by a conception of art as a contest or competition from which there must emerge a definite winner, and by the seeming incommensurability of gold-plated medals or crystal statuettes, mounted certificates or outsized checks with the rare achievements of artistic genius that these objects are supposed to honor and reflect. Art and sport may be essentially identical facets of human life, as Johann Heisinga argued half a century ago in Homo Ludens, and as is perhaps assumed by contemporary accountants when they enter an exhibition of post-impressionist paintings and an international track meet on the same arts and sports line of marketing costs in a corporate expense ledger. But much uh, in the modern ideology of art militates against such a view, insisting that, quote, the whole emphasis on winners and losers is false and out of place in the context of culture. And that quote is from John Berger. Indeed, to most observers, cultural prizes represent an external imposition on the world of art rather than an expression of its own energies. The rise of prizes over the past century, and especially their feverish proliferation in recent decades, is widely seen as one of the more glaring symptoms of a consumer society run rampant a society that can conceive of artistic achievement only in terms of stardom and success. And that is fast replacing a rich and varied cultural world with a shallow and homogenous culture based on the model of network TV prizes from this vantage point are not a celebration, but a contamination of the most precious aspects of art. So that's a kind of mission statement or a thesis paragraph uh, for much that's in this book, but Mike, I guess, uh, there's more to say about what, uh, how he characterizes the no- Nobel in particular in, in, in literature, starting in, in this kind of early 20th century moment, turn, mm-hmm. turn of the century moment. Alfred Nobel dies in 1895 mm-hmm. and in his will creates this legacy of prizes in, of course, many fields, right? Economics, physics, all sorts of sciences and Peace, mm-hmm. notably, uh, uh, and then literature as well. So uh, tell us more, I guess, about the English argument about all these things.
1: It's been a success. The Nobel has been a success. like Its own kind of yes. prize. It deserves its prize. It's, it's ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give a no, <laughs> the Nobel should win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, he, he pinpoints the industry of the award and how uh, the Nobel has not only dug in as the as the award par excellence but how it's spawned uh so many uh, imitators competitors and and fillers in of sort of deficits left by the nobel prize totally. in a sense, as he says yeah the industry the yeah, the award industries is quite fascinating uh but it seems like speaking particularly for literature although for other feels as well the nobel is the big one it's the big one yeah and we the,
0: have that phrase the nobel prize
1: of tattoo artists the nobel <laughs> prize of you know hairstylist to right raise those two examples he has in that paragraph so this is the one you want it's the one that you would be crazy to turn down <laughs> <laughs> well then, yes, maybe, yes. maybe we'll get to that yeah uh, in, yeah in due time
0: so turning down one million us dollars roughly which we don't know in croners <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly how much that is. uh English talks about the 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 competitive world between prizes themselves which is quite fascinating to think about because um of course that's kind of a second order of competition people compete for prizes prizes how can prizes compete amongst themselves but this this is a reality of of, of the world in, in in many aspects of just hyper hyper competition yeah. And the
0: prestige of his title in an interesting way, I don't know if he says this outright, but it's as though it's, it's the prestige of the prize givers right. of Sweden as the home of the Nobel prize that is part of the economy for, um, uh, and valuation, uh, value being his, his key term, you yeah, know, that English sees it in this almost distanced way of the entirety of, uh, value that types of value that are circulating in these prizes. So there
1: is the sense that not only does the award winner gain prestige, the award giver gains prestige. There is a, a sharing of it's it's a prestige fest festival. Uh in in many positive not to denigrate that right, in any right. sense. It's not anonymously given. <laughs> it's the, the name the name is so much of that currency. There is of course, uh, a very significant cash prize, which enables for the work and is uh, extremely valuable for the continuation of culture. But the name goes far; the, the name rings true. And uh, it, would a rose by any other name be a rose? Mm, yeah, maybe. But the Nobel wouldn't. <laughs> well, and as, as we were discussing briefly...
0: Uh, Nobel, of course, is the prize. The name is the prize, and that association with dynamite right. and munitions in, in his lifetime is expunged. And we're familiar with that kind of, um, you know, cigarette companies like Philip Morris sponsoring uh, art in general as a way of uh, whitewashing reputation. But this maybe is, you know, we we would have to examine that sort of in we historical would. context if we were to.
1: Pursue this argument, I guess we right, would. Yeah. But it is an interesting origin story of right. that. And um, English also brings up the the strange practice <laughs> of the Nobel. This is this is his words, almost the ritualistic aspect, which is also a, a Delillo favorite theme. Right? I feel like there's there's multiple Delillo favorite themes in that uh, paragraph that you read, Jeff. The strange practice equates artistic production with uh, the competitive nature of sports or of other aspects of play. The subtext here is why do we need to compete at all (laughs) (laughs) with art? Yes, exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it's strange too,
0: that we have winner, you know, we do think of this as, uh, winning the competition, but it's sort of saved by the fact that there's a winner every year. And of course we're gearing up now for the 2024, Nobel Prize that will be Don DeLillo's, of course, you know, um, as we, as we hope it to be, but there is that tension as he, uh, between this and sports and also sports as a 19th century, um, you know, not, uh, having its origin in the 19th century, but sports culture kind of rises, uh, in a way that makes this a kind of natural outgrowth of, of that kind of culture spectacle, Mm -hmm. uh, in the 20th century, you know, where that, um, the Nobel prize sort of gets going in
1: Mm -hmm. tacit insistence on competition is that competition breeds excellence, right? We have the free market of, of ideas, the free market of art and, uh, so the winner goes spoils, right? Why why wouldn't we instill an economic element, uh, the, the the element of just a, a, a competitive market to this production uh, will that not stimulate the best of the best to to rise to the top? There is competition
0: as a kind of
1: um, yeah, this is a
0: Marxist perspective on the whole thing that emphasizes the competition for and of prestige, but there's also the economy of gift uh, to consider. And that comes up in English's argument in part uh, in reference to the most famous refusal of the Nobel Prize in 1964. Mm -hmm. Jean-Paul Sartre uh, refuses the Nobel Prize in a way that is sort of accidental um, in that Sartre notifies the Academy uh, that he uh, he wouldn't accept the prize. And that letter apparently gets lost. Um, it's something that I didn't know about before reading this, this part of English. Um, and in general, uh, what English emphasizes is that this prize is a gift, you know, in the sort of literal terms of giving the million dollars or whatever amount it was then. And, uh, to refuse it is to invoke in a way, the kind of cultural stigma around a kind of ungraciousness about gifts but what he says about Sartre in particular is that um the reason he kind of got away with it is that he um had a, a kind of countervailing um uh, cultural identity as a, ref- a figure of refusal that he had always refused prizes yes. and that that um and had rejected the entirety of prize culture which uh, supersedes the the ungraciousness of not accepting uh, this gift. And as he, as English suggests, too, this is a kind of identity for the writer that is old uh, in the culture and that after Sartre, it's hard to believe that Writers that other many other writers would occupy that position such that refusing the, the Nobel would make a kind of logical sense mm-hmm. um, to a global audience or to, you know, uh, people placing this in, in history. And I thought, well, uh, Mike gets antsy if I mentioned Bob Dylan uh, too much, <laughs> because as we'll see with Great Jones Street, there's a kind of uh, we have to multiply the images mm-hmm. of who Bucky like is beyond Bob Dylan, but I thought it was interesting, you know, English is, is writing this book in 2005 and this precedes by about 10 years, uh, 11 years, Bob Dylan's Nobel prize, which wasn't rejected, but was talked about in the press as Dylan didn't get in touch and say, yes, thank you very quickly. Um, there's, you know, uh, I, I think, well, you know, there, there was a kind of error of possible refusal around it. But the thing that countervails against the the authenticity of Sartre's refusal is celebrity culture, mm-hmm. commercial culture, mm-hmm. and who is more a who is the most commercial winner of the Nobel Prize of all time in the sense that he has a you know he's in the marketplace of concert giving. He's a music musician and music. <laughs> yes, is 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 it's it's a by different Della. audience. He's the kind a- of richest Nobel Prize winner. I mean, I yeah. won't we'll, uh, say that for sure. But um, this is, uh, you know, I think this kind of vindicates, in a sense, English's logic about that act of refusal or act of just being making it awkward as as a prize. But yeah, he's a musician; he doesn't fit the mold. And uh, well, leads to think. I noticed on the odds list that I uh, looked at that Taylor Swift. (laughs) <laughs> it is listed, you can get odds on Taylor Swift being the winner of the Nobel Prize. I think it was a hundred to one, yep. which. You know You're baiting me here, I'm baiting You're, you're just yes. baiting me I, I started with Dylan <laughs> And now I've gone to The idea that Not just Dylan uh, But Taylor Swift Might be in the running I don't know Nobel Prize uh, Up against our man And so many other Much 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 More deserving I Writers don't, I don't know writers.
1: If what I'm thinking Right
0: now Should be committed to it, Committed to Taylor <laughs> Uh, but Maybe we should uh, take out after Horace Engdahl as uh, as our next
1: object of scrutiny. I'd like to get back to start very briefly. Yeah, but Before do, we do it. Do it. Do it. There's two points that uh, that, that story brings up well told by you. Um, even if there was misunderstanding to that whole affair, and, and there was, um, I feel like that incident set in in high relief that notion of the bureaucratization of art that the technocratic hmm. uh abstraction of of excellence that that english points to which is still is it an issue i don't know for me it it remains there to to varying degrees there is that sense of 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 disconnect from from what the art was is will do etc it's it's in a different place now and i feel like start really Really set that in, in high contrast and in, in high relief. The other part of that, English brings up, quote, art requires continual acts of communal make-believe to sustain, end quote. It's a great line. It's, it's truly an incredible line. And the word here I want to highlight is communal. There's a communal celebration. There is a, there's a consensus. There's an agreement. And it is, is publicized, it's both generated, maybe it is generated privately, although I feel like the whole judicial process uh, of the Nobel Prize, is, <laughs> that's a subject unto itself. But um, I think that the important part here is that there is no ridiculous controversy. <laughs> it shouldn't be controversial. I don't think that the Nobel ever really tries to be controversial. There's an acceptance, there's a, there's an installment into not only fame and posterity, but into uh, a kind of global, a global consensus here, a well, communal make believe.
0: Yeah, I mean, true, but the other aspect of this, that, you know, and to bring this up, I, I have to admit, as I you know, did earlier, that to not knowing, um, about every Nobel prize winner and also uh, not knowing who the Nobel prize winners are. And that's especially kind of um, a function of the prize, isn't it? To bring writers in, uh, African writers, Chinese writers, uh, to just cite a couple of examples to prominence for their descent within their societies, Um, um, which is maybe not what you mean by being controversial uh, here, that there but there is a kind of um, politics making function of the prize that is often noted and maybe was kind of more noted that ten to 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, with a string uh, of uh, winners um, I mean it doesn't always work this way Peter Hentke won in 2019 and was seen as the you know a political writer and and, and a controversial winner in a in the opposite sense, in that he was, you know, a Milosevic sympathizer, had said sort of positive things about genocide. That's that, a good point. Um, and so it's a multivalent thing, but uh, the consensus over or communal function is undeniable, right? As a, as a, um, in the in the terms
1: of that quotation. Shall we get to the end all? Well, yeah, well, well,
0: speaking of, of controversy, too, we wanted to kind of transition into talking about Delillo as global writer, as American writer who's not provincial <laughs> at all. In other words, at all. quite eligible for a Nobel Prize. That's right. Term. And in in these kind of other in these some of these contexts we're invoking. But just to get Horace Engdahl's words out, in two thousand eight he was um permanent secretary of the Swedish Academy. And so he was in a sense, the head of the Nobel prize in literature at the time, a few days before the winner was announced in um, early October. Then in 2008, he said in an interview um, that he eventually walked back in some way. He Mm -hmm. said this, of course there is a powerful literature in all big cultures, but you can't get away from the fact that Europe is still the center of the literary world, not the United States. The U.S. is too isolated, too insular. They don't translate enough and don't really participate (laughs) in the big dialogue of literature. That ignorance is restraining. And he mentions at another point in this interview that the Americans are into their own trends uh, as part of this consumer uh, model uh, that he's invoking here. Remarkable statement remarkable statement and roundly it, it was sort of instantaneously uh, ground down uh, it, and uh, rightfully so and Engdahl had to walk it back I mean for one thing part of what the characterization of the of the Nobel Prize that you were you know talking about before there's a kind of part of what's uncontroversial about it is it's it's seen as above it well, There's a fairness to it that wouldn't uh, that this brings out a kind of exception to this sense that like, well, no American at this point had won it since Toni Morrison, who was, of course, kind of in a class by herself as uh, as writer. And so there was a kind
1: of like, well, no American is going to win it, uh, which goes against what Nobel himself stipulated being that nationality is not to be considered. Uh, it is not to be a, a, a pick this country, pick that country, pick that country. Uh, that doesn't even play into things. Whereas Engdahl is saying,
0: they're out of the running. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and for even him to draw a contrast where it's Europe that is the cultural center, and that's controversial in itself. It's because yeah. obviously like, yes. yeah, it's I mean, too you know, Eurocentrism. Uh,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So there's there's two at least two faults here. Uh, there's more faults in that laundry list of why America shouldn't be considered. Exactly, exactly. Too insular, too inwardly drawn. Don't translate enough. They don't participate in the
0: world stage. Yeah. I mean, the translation point is sort of borne out by statistics, where it's sort of like a single-digit percentage of global literary texts that ever get translated in the U S that point, we, we may have to concede. We, see <laughs> we that may have to concede. It's, that. it's so sort of obvious in a way uh, that, you know, it, it takes a sort of huge reputation in a sense in global letters to get translations into English and, and marketing in, in the U S you know, Murakami who was mentioned as a favorite for this year's Nobel prize, you know, and and has been for a couple of years at least is Perhaps one of the best examples of that, you know, what's Japanese literature? Well, it's Haruki America. Exactly, yes. books are everywhere and translated, and Exactly. so
1: yeah. I almost feel like Engdahl's statement here is a reaction not to American literature, but to more of an American globalism. I'm suspicious that America's place in the world, exactly, than, uh, right? America's uh, global politics. I feel like Engdahl saying that American literature is not on the world stage is intimately tied with him saying tacitly America, the country is too much on the world stage and the literature imperial in it's presence, yes. So the generally. literature is ours. America can have everything else. <laughs> I feel like that uh, the, what, can have all the other kinds of powers. What like do you that. think about that Jeff? Is that fair or unfair? Well, I, or? I,
0: I, I I think it's fair. And I think we should talk about obviously a, a kind of writer that we see as an exception to this caricature and that's uh, Don DeLillo. But the particular ways in which DeLillo um, has kind of moved across his career um, uh, into a kind of identification with a, a global perspective, uh, an international perspective, but one that it has as its primary focus, exactly kind of what you're Mm -hmm. building from Engel, which is an image of the kind of ugly American, um, you know, perspective on the world that is, um, you know, imperial in relation to so much of the global sphere, including culturally, or Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, nowadays almost primarily (laughs) culturally, Mm -hmm. um, a kind of soft imperial structure Mm -hmm. um, around the world that DeLillo is, is very much addressing himself to that kind of place of Americans in the world, especially after a certain point in his career, especially after the names, uh, which is his first internationally set book. Yes. uh, i might say, but say more about this kind of um, DeLillo we're invoking.
1: To call American literature insular or isolated, like, who are you talking about? Carson <laughs> McCullers? Like, <laughs> can't win. Yeah. Passed <laughs> away. I know. Like, like it, seems, it seems almost nonsensical to me because uh, to specify with DeLillo, as you mentioned, with the names in particular, even though the perspective is American, DeLillo shows systematically the entanglements of America with the global stage. Yeah. Vice versa. And this isn't only America imposing itself on the world, the, the hapless victimized world. It's not at all that simple. It's a it's a give and a take, it's a push and a pull. It's a it's a complicated network. And Cornelius Collins in uh, is Delillo in context?
0: Yeah. This is an
1: essay of his about the world
0: and uh, Delillo in, um, Delillo in context. Uh, Jesse Cavadlo edited that he
1: highlights in a, in a brief way, but in a very effective way, how, uh, globally minded Delillo is in his work, not only traveling, uh, around America, also, around the world, most notably Greece for that Guggenheim, and the, and the the Middle East, the Middle East you know, as well, more broadly. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it's mentioned that he wanted to go to Lebanon, uh, but he didn't quite make it there because well, in for Mao too. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, he
0: wanted Mao too is the is the other text that Collins talks about, and that clearly makes a, a kind of uh, is a globally set in an important way um, with Be- the scenes in Beirut uh, that in particular but that DeLillo, well, it's interesting. I mean, we'll, we, we will uh, podcast on both these novels mm-hmm. we've invoked and, and so much that happens in the, in the career, including earlier than the names, the uh, players is, a, is an example of maybe a, a book that opens on to global affairs through the figure of the, of the terrorist. But I guess what we're emphasizing here is just the fact of global of a uh, Delillo's, uh, openness, uh, to, and critical stance towards, um, the kinds of, uh, issues that, uh, Engdahl is raising and, and implying, but should we talk
1: about the particular kind of speech on the global stage that we have in mind? We should. I want one more point before then. No. Yeah, I know you are welcome <laughs> so to So even, I mean, post names, uh, Collins makes a great case for the global Delillo. I would say pre-names DeLillo, even though he's writing about America, even though his characters aren't, uh, you know, jet-setting around the world, they're not globe trotting. DeLillo is such an omnivorous consumer of culture. America being an excellent example of a multiplicity of cultures uh, coming together. The, the American experiment. He talks about listening to Ali Akbar Khan in Americana. Mm. He talks about Islam in Endzone america itself is shot through with the globe and i feel like it's it's doing delillo an extreme disservice by saying that he just writes about america america itself is already global and whatever
0: of Engdahl, whatever Engdahl is noting a kind of domesticia or something in or a kind of narcissism or focus on relationships on the upper West side of Manhattan right. it might be a characterization of a certain strand of American literature, you know, stories in the New Yorker are talked about in, in these terms with Delillo, you know, players is a good example, but also much later, the, uh, the body Artist, and, and um, there are other works to note. domesticia is always a kind of pathway um outward I, I think you know certainly the pammy and lyle and, and players is is a uh, their marriage is giving way to yeah. uh the kind of uh adultery of of terrorism uh the exoticism of that. And, yeah their, their glamorization of something very you know outside of the domestic uh um, yes the foreign the
1: terroristic and so on falling man mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. one more yes, domestic event and print. yet yeah. this is the world stage Right. This, this is America, but there are characters in this book that aren't American that are working uh, one of the defining American. events of the, the 21st century. Yeah. And DeLillo has it both ways, like he does with so many other things in, in the most subtle way. He's writing American literature, and that literature is uh, global in impact. Mm-hmm. It is not. It is not necessarily literature for only americans he's been translated to multiple languages apparently falling man is much more popular outside but of america Sarah collins points out yes right? which right. that's an incredible detail that mm-hmm. uh, falling man could be better received outside of america uh, compared to america itself yeah uh, i feel like there's um a deep comment to be made yeah we're we're speaking in a
0: way broadly to the fact that after a certain point, and it certainly occurs within Dalilla's career, whether it's, you know, 1980 something or 1990 something, so many prominent authors become global authors by virtue of this kind of global marketplace, or, you know, there's a set bit to invoke Rushdie associated with uh, a nation state uh, with India and Pakistan and in his great chronicle of that history in midnight's children. Mm-hmm. But living in Amer- living in the US for so much of his career you know and partaking in US celebrity culture this is you know a kind of um, obvious point but there um there is a kind of flattening of the the national literary marketplace in a way that English departments seek to catch up to in a sense uh, uh with uh you know national designations still having a role to play but We're talking about world literature and and so on.
1: Let's also not kid ourselves. DeLillo is writing in English, which is, like it or not, a global... It's a global language. And also, like it or not, America still is a country of intense interest for multiple people around the world. Right. Uh, There's no escaping that. There's no denying that. America, as subject, is a global concern. Yeah. And... I would love to hear a rebuttal to... Well, Mike, I think one
0: rebuttal we might get is to say it is the United States <laughs> that we are referring to, that America is a designation of um, <laughs> uh, an entire hemisphere, the Americas and so on. The United States it. of America. Uh, that, that's right, is, is one designation that I want to just reassure sure. our listeners we are... Uh, uh, keen on here. Uh, let's uh, get into the text that we want to uh, explore more closely of DeLillo's. And that's a, a text that has to do with the imprisonment of uh, Chinese dissident uh, artist Wei Jing Sheng, who was um, a political activist uh, imprisoned uh, in China for a total of 18 years, from 79 to 93, and then again from 1994 to 1997. The happy end of the story in 1997 is that he was released on, or deported on medical parole to the United States, and then was able to continue uh, living in the United States and has the Wei Jingsheng Foundation in New York City, uh, later based in Washington, D.C., to advocate for human rights. DeLillo enters this picture as a reader of a particularly riveting piece, uh, an essay um, called The Artist Naked in a Cage at Readings Given in Way's Honor um, in May of 1997. This was subsequently published in The New Yorker, and uh, then Way was uh, released on this medical parole um, and sent to the United States in November, 1997. And so without knowing exactly what the effectiveness of this particular event was, we were going to focus in on mm-hmm. what DeLillo had to say, because as is maybe characteristic of him, he said a lot about uh, art, politics, avant-garde art in particular, hunger art, uh, we might say, Let's uh, read from The Artist Naked in a Cage. It's broken into eight sections? No, 11, 11. sections, yes. Eleven sections, and we will read them here. One, last month there was a man in a cage in Soho, a performance artist, Russian, impersonating a dog. He padded about on hands and knees, naked except for a thick collar, and he growled occasionally, took water from a bowl, and sniffed at his rubber lamb chop. It's possible that you've never really thought about dogs until you've seen a man seriously engaged in believing he is a dog. The cage had a small barred slot where visitors to the gallery could get down on all fours, as a number of people were inclined to do, in order to talk to the dog, or whimper, as some did, or show the dog snapshots of their own dogs, speaking to him slowly and
1: clearly, either because he was a foreigner or because he was a dog. 2. In Kafka's story, A Hunger Artist... A man lives in a small cage for 40 days and nights without eating. People pay admission to watch him starve, to gawk at his bony arms and bared ribs. The man has a manager, and the manager has placed a 40-day limit on the hunger artist's performance. Not because the artist may die of starvation after this time, but because the manager has calculated that this figure represents the far edge of the public's fickle interest. Three.
0: In China somewhere, a writer lives in a small enclosure, a barred room perhaps, or a dark hole with a slot for food. We can imagine that the writer has made and shaped his own fate. He has a name, Wei Jing Sheng, and a history outside the charges and documents assembled by the state, and maybe he has an art outside the strict limits of the written word. In this sense, his high blood pressure and arthritis and depression his dizzy spells and rotting gums may be seen as strong-willed symptoms of the artist's enduring effort to realize his role,
1: a writer in opposition to the state. 4. In a culture, ours, that tries to absorb and neutralize every threat to consumer consciousness, the spectacle of a man living as a dog has a kind of shifting eloquence. It offers a genuine sense of the latitude of free expression and places a small, incisive shock in the midst of all those Soho apparel shops and restaurants. But it also suggests the grim idea that the performance artist liberated from Soviet state control, hair cropped and dog collar secured, may be carrying his own culture's atavistic wish for order and repression.
0: Five. The Chinese writers art is to to be still, not silent, but still. The writer's classic condition, to be alone in a room, has been cruelly extended here. Wei is a still figure, working out his fate in a confined space, refusing to eat at times, living for long periods on a teaspoon of sugar a day, dissolved in water. And whirling around this stillness, there is something continuous and
1: ponderous and vast, the perennial frenzy of the state. 6. A REAL DOG ENTERED THE GALLERY A boxer, well-trained, and the performance artist began to bark. He developed a strong, sharp bark, edged with warning. When an art critic entered his cage, in Sweden, the performance artist bit him. 7. The total
0: state wants to drain all conviction from the writer. It wants to absorb the dissident writer. In the West, every writer is absorbed, turned into breakfast food or canned laughter. But the more nearly total the state the more vivid the dissident artist. The artist is so vivid and singular, so unassimilated into the state machine,
1: that the state must find a way to make him disappear. Eight. In fact, the hunger artist in Kafka believes he can fast for more than 40 days. He has taken his art to extreme limits. It is the tragedy of his life that he isn't allowed to stay hungry, that he is forced to come out of his cage and eat in a public ceremony with band music and attending physicians. Nine. The Chinese writer is treated by police doctors. His
0: cell is so cold that frost forms on the door. He suffers chest pains and can't sleep. The doctors address his symptoms in a traditional manner by deciding they are faked. The writer stops eating again. A hunger strike is a free act, undictated by the authorities, and Wei starves himself to protest local conditions, of course, and to grow ever more still as well, the still fixed
1: center of that whirling frenzy. 10. When the hunger artist dies, they decide to put an animal in his cage, a strong young creature equipped with sharp pointed teeth that can rip meat clean off a bone. People come to watch the animal eat, an audience in far greater numbers than the hunger artist could ever command. 11. The deeper they conceal him,
0: the more remote the cell, the smaller the cell, the colder and stonier the walls of the cell, the more vivid and living is the writer.
1: Immediately we have DeLillo on the global stage. We have him coming uh, in defense of a writer in China. uh, An artist in China. And in a
0: way that we won't be able to Covered today but this is a scene that is elaborated uh, artistically in Mao too um, with the the poet in prison that Bill Gray is speaking on reading on behalf of that gets him out of New York and sends him uh, to the Middle East for this reading and, and so on but I mean this just reading it aloud with you I start seeing more of the trajectory of this piece, the fact that it juxtaposes the starving of the hunger artist and the, you know, being on the point of death uh, there with what DeLillo is clearly trying to evoke here, which is the fact that Wei is going to die in prison if uh, he is not freed, if he is not attended to, if his, you know, uh, that that valence of this is, there's an urgency to it that I hadn't quite you know uh, reckoned with
1: before <clears throat> absolutely, it's humanitarian in in thrust it's uh, It's truly about not only artistic freedom but freedom <laughs> yeah. of speech, freedom of of life, freedom of uh, determining one's own life. And uh, reading it aloud with you, it is a manifesto. truly. Uh, I feel like even these short these short points, these these vignettes, these statements. It's not only a manifesto for political freedom, but artistic freedom as well. And not to, not to necessarily equate, uh, those two, because I feel like if you were to ask me physical, uh, bodily autonomy and freedom does mean more than artistic freedom. I think the point that DeLillo is also making here is that for, for society, they can be the same thing to to speak to write to engage in, in social discourse to make create share art in other words those aren't necessarily separate activities of the human uh in terms of living one's life they don't need to be separated
0: well and
1: delilo is thinking of
0: the artist the writer in a, in a very broad and a global sense I mean, I would say it's not only a manifesto for freedom and artistic freedom, but it's an anti-totalitarian manifesto in that the, it's the Russian, uh, the, the, the Soviet, former Soviet artist, performance artist, who in section four is to um, he's liberated from Soviet state control, but with his dog collar and so on, he may be carrying his own culture's atavistic wish for order and repression... Which strikes me as, in the age of Putin's uh, domination of Russia, a kind of prophetic remark about um, Russia in particular, you know, only recently uh, liberated from Soviet uh, control in the early, early 90s. So there's that aspect of this that's bringing totalitarian states together, and I do have the other thought about totalitarianism, in I think Hannah Arendt is is behind parts of this too. Mm-hmm. But I want to, you know, what your remarks about kind of separating artistic freedom and physical freedom. Maybe think of that section um, where he brings the two together in seven. Um, that mm. uh, the total state, which is a reference to China. Right. And it, it's then uh, wants to drain all conviction from the writer. It wants to absorb the dissident writer. So the context there is China and the particular politics of China. And then in the West, every writer is absorbed, turned into breakfast food or canned laughter. One of the I mean, this is a kind of question for you. The the risk, the danger of such a statement, a conjunction of sentences like those I just read, is that DeLau is almost saying, well the, the we in the West have mm. it kind of worse mm. because we're not treated as dissidents in any way, that we're just part of a kind of background track at best, a kind of white noise that is breakfast. Cereal and canned laughter. Avocado shaving cream <laughs> with tap <laughs> rice. It's, it's it, avocado instant shave. <laughs> I think, it's yeah. something like I don't it. know. It would, it would avocado shaving? But maybe I don't is, know. I'm not an aficionado yeah. of shaving cream. But go on, but, go on. Well, it, I mean, it, it I think we're evoking a kind of jocular approach to a serious subject. Is 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 in a sense what I'm getting at here that DeLillo is conflating to some extent the total state of China with all its repressive physically repressive apparatus censorship and so on that way is up against with um, the free the uh, you know with the situation of the american writer because that's what he's thinking of here that he's drawing an analogy that is endemic to DeLillo's work and we'll be talking about various points, but it's, it's sort of starkly posed here as a kind of comparative politics, uh, comparing repressive politics as, you know, political scientists would call them with a kind of cultural politics that are, um, you know, more metaphysical in
1: nature. Right. That's Uh, an excellent point. I think that that contrast is absolutely being made. I wonder if DeLillo is somehow, entranced perhaps by the liter- the literal plight of the imprisoned writer compared to say the United States of America where you're either ignored or you're made into a joke or you sign or up a, cel- a, a celebrity yeah. without substance. You write sitcoms. <laughs> so <laughs> I, yeah, especially yeah. now, right. It's like
0: novelist is skipped over as a step on the way to being a Netflix series. Yeah, like So that,
1: right? D- Delillo is, is you're, you're hundred percent right. If I'm, if I'm following you here, Delillo is on the one hand, positing the total state of uh, the communist party of China and literal imprisonment on the other hand we have uh consumers in america with uh, a wealth of freedoms a wealth of choices a wealth of consumptions and kind of a glut of a different type of imprisonment not uh not literally uh, commensurable with each other but um it equals <laughs> Leading to this state of absorption that is delillo's kind of obsession,
0: in yeah, a way, the way things get drowned out or
1: or brought into a kind of dullness Absolutely, act of being you know in the cloud of white noise absolutely in so in both situations I- in all situations, it seems like Delillo is arguing that writing is a struggle, the writer is a struggler, the writer is one who is actively swimming against the current and it's it's work it's <laughs> in, art. in the current right is one that he would interpret as
0: uh, the struggle of articulation within a, a a sphere that doesn't value language broadly speaking. I mean, I think the, the, the more vivid image exactly that he yes. ends on the idea that the writer becomes more vivid understandably reflects his own situation reflects more on how he can you know think of his own situation than um, this particular occasion of you know commenting on uh, Communist China although I, I would have to you know again this is a dense text for being, you know, it's a couple hundred words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just these short 11 short sections and he's interweaving a lot. He's committing as well. I think we can firmly say to the idea of being a Kafka type of artist, right? That that is a kind of bridge, um, for him between his own practice and his own portrayal of someone like Gary Harkness on hunger strike, totally. or I'll put that in quotes on a kind of hunger strike at the end of end zone. Um, in relation to, you know, both artists art and protest as it might otherwise be more conventionally practiced, you know, um, life or death stakes are here. The stakes are high. Yeah. And in the context of the American writer, you know, um and end zone and so
1: on. With that 11th section, there is. It seems to me that he's saying that art is going to win no matter what. Uh, no matter, however, however much the, the artist or the human is pressed down, there will be an equal pushing back up. To me, there's a <laughs> there's there's quite stark statements about what society, consumer culture, the state does to the individual. But there is an equal uh, pressure balance of what the individual can do to and with and in the state the the current situation that he or she finds mm-hmm. himself in mm-hmm. so ultimately even though there is um there there's pain there's struggle there is uh, adversity literal imprisonment being discussed here there is a, a clear line of Is it the human soul? Is it the human spirit? Is it just the the need and the will to communicate and in some ways transmute experience? I feel like there's a, we haven't talked too much about the dog boy, here, but, um, there's a, there's a triumph of, of the, of the, the word made flesh of the imagination worked into the fabric of, of the world here.
0: Well, and it, it, you know, it also brings up the fact that this is me. DeLillo would start writing much more about, uh, performance artists, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is a name we could give to this, uh, performer of the dog identity, um, who remains nameless here. We could find out (laughs) who this, uh, Russian artist is, but that there's something the Kafka hunger artist is certainly an enduring, um, kind of identity for DeLillo or something I identifies with. But when you think about in 97, he's finished Underworld. It's out in the world. And then the next book will be The Body Artist about a performance artist. And then Falling Man has a performance artist in it. And I think there's more to say as we go along with, our, with these books about the prominence of the particular kind of embodiment Art that a performance artist puts before an audience,
1: non-linguistic, non-linguistic as well. Yeah. which is yeah. interesting to consider. Yeah, and
0: yet, right, written about uh, by Lillo and that kind of. It's we were saying with David Bell, right? The film and novel are, are kind of media that work together to create <laughs> this uh, uh, artwork of, of his. I wanted to say one more thing about that. I mentioned a Rent uh, yes. earlier, and uh, just to look ahead for us, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is just how much of Hitler study, (laughs) how much of the study of fascism historically and totalitarianism has DeLillo done. And to me, the total frenzy of the state, uh, which gets mentioned here, the perennial frenzy of the state. I don't, I don't know a rent in great detail uh, beyond having read her, but I know that she talks in defining origin, In origins of totalitarianism, what makes a totalitarian state? She talks about the state as a perpetual motion machine that has to be in constant frenzy, or it kind of dies. In a sense, has to be doing
1: things. Uh, Communal make believe. Well, <laughs> tell me what you mean by that, because I don't. So I'm just I'm just making, I'm just making a, a parallel between the Nobel Prize. And <laughs> And a totalitarianism. I'm going to dissim- <laughs> a totalitarianism of the Nobel Prize. Right at this moment, I don't mean to interrupt you, though. Jeff. Please, please continue. <laughs> well, that that um,
0: this to me signals that there's, you know, in a way, I think DeLillo is so um, funny and uh, quick and subtle and with uh, and has a light touch in presenting something like Hitler's studies that we don't think of it coming with the ballast of a kind of theorization of totalitarianism, you know, in the deep sense that comes out of history and political science, because he's doing so much with this parallel we're talking about between totalitarianism and consumerism um, as, you know, uh, parallel cults and and so on. Anyway, that's for the future because, but it's, I was surprised to kind of hear it, uh, little traces echoes of it here
1: i want to ask you though if this if this reads like a, a nobel prize speech uh, or not obviously well, it was not uh, are you intent- thinking of the presence of the swede <laughs> in I, the essay? I would like to draw attention <laughs> <Reread> that sentence <laughs> i would like to draw attention to a couple of things here um one of them is in section six when an art critic entered his cage in sweden the performance artist bit him uh the other one i want to draw attention to and this is this is coming from the kafka this is an eight in fact the hunger artist in kafka believes he can fast for more than 40 days he has taken his art to extreme limits it is the tragedy of his life that he isn't allowed to stay hungry that he is forced to come out of his cage and eat in a public ceremony with band music and attending physicians there's a
0: he's he's not allowed to be as existential about it as he
1: wants to be in a sense, right? He's not allowed to be as artistic about it as he wants (laughs) to be. He's told, okay, time to come out, have, have some food. Here's some music time to make merry. Uh, that that's over with. Okay. There's a, there's a literal abstraction out of the cage, which a lot of people would, would celebrate. Uh, the, the hunger Mm -hmm. artist wants to be there. This is where he is. He Wants to be it is I mean the Constant word at least in
0: translation Is satisfied that he was Not satisfied with uh, The extent of his hunger Which is you know what that Is so uh,
1: I don't Know just compelling about that Kafka Vision there's some anti applause I feel Mm. uh, worked into This essay we could keep teasing out uh, Connections to Actual award ceremonies if we wanted To (laughs) but yeah
0: (laughs) We've done enough to be expressed i think our skepticism about the nobel prize which is important to a podcast that by title seems to be hungering after the nobel prize and giving it to a man that we're we're more being uh kind of provocative and uh joking uh, a little bit not to
1: yeah while not
0: sneezing at it at the same, at the same, same time. time we want it to happen 2024 october we'll be back here <laughs> for another nobel breakfast that we hope has a different outcome where we're Celebrating—it's
1: a skepticism, but a, a healthy skepticism. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, should we close with a couple of uh, lines that look ahead in the corpus uh, to that seem relevant to a discussion of the Nobel Prize? The first one I'll read is from a, a book two, two, two or three podcasts away for us, which is Ratner's Star, which begins with Billy Twillig or Billy Terwilliger, Tw- uh, this young mathematician, fourteen years old. And uh, this sentence is on essentially the second page of the novel. With Sweden at war, <laughs> <laughs> classic DeLillo joke in uh, the opening phrase, he had received his Nobel Prize in a brief ceremony on a lawn in Pennyfellow, Connecticut, traveling to and from that locale in the back seat of his father's little Ford. DeLillo, from the distance of 1976, and maybe not having earned his shot at the Nobel yet, is already uh, thinking. Well, you know, this is about math and science, and Ratner's is all about that. But uh, yeah, we we hear a little <laughs> bit of a jab at the prize it's just a bit for literature of there. And then the other quote is from Edward Fenig, who is a writer, a very weird writer in Great Jones Street. Mm-hmm. We have more to say about him. He is trying to find his market niche. Mm-hmm. He says this repeatedly. This is a kind of refrain in the book. Fame. He said, it won't happen, but if it does happen, but it won't happen. But if it does, but it won't. <laughs> and, uh, that seems like an appropriate ending for a moment when we're thinking about the global literary fame
1: of Don DeLillo. All in all, <laughs> congratulations to this year's winner, uh, Jan Fossa. And, uh, I think we know who's the favorite for 2024 in our book. Yeah. In our (laughs) bookmaking. The bets have already been made.
0: Yeah, we're a couple of bookies when it comes down to (laughs) it.